Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The protests in Gaza remind us of some, some uncomfortable truths. I'll talk with writer Peter Beinert about the reaction to the protests in Gaza. We find out about a production at the Goodman Theater based on the experiences of Syrian refugees. And in our global activism segment, the group Save a Mother reduces maternal mortality in India. We'll hear how they do it. Don't forget, you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. What Palestinian organizers call the Great March of Return will happen again tomorrow along Gaza's border with Israel. So far, Israeli forces have killed 45 people. Somewhere over 5,000 protesters have been wounded. We're going to talk about how American Jews should respond to this situation with Peter Beinert. He's been writing about it in the foreword where he's a columnist. His latest column was American Jews have abandoned Gaza and the truth. Thanks for joining us, Peter Beinert. Uh, Nice to be here. What do you mean when you say American Jews have abandoned the truth? I mean that American Jewish organizations have told a story about Gaza that I think is substantially not true. In my piece, I go through three main arguments that are used to justify Israeli policy in Gaza. The first is that Israel withdrew in 2005. And I argue that while it's true that Israel withdrew its settlers and soldiers from the Gaza Strip in 2005, the implication, and often sometimes made explicit, is that Israel therefore bears no control over what happens in Gaza. And my argument is that actually Israel does still effectively control Gaza through a whole series of mechanisms, even though it doesn't have people on the ground. The second is that Israel's blockade of Gaza is simply required for security, uh, for to protect Israelis. And I argue that there are a lot of aspects of the blockade that can't really reasonably be justified on security grounds. You argue that it's an economic situation where Israel sometimes does it for its own benefit. In part, not all of the blockade, but I specifically look, for instance, at a couple of cases in which there have been reporting from Israeli newspapers that when Israeli farmers had a surplus of goods, for instance, that they wanted to unload, they would, the government would ease Gaza's ability to import products so that Israeli farmers could sell them. And there was another case a few years ago where for the holiday of Sukkot, Jews waved something called the lulavim, which are palm fronds, and there was a big shortage of them. And so all of a sudden, the Israeli government allowed Gaza to export these to Israel. So I'm not suggesting that the blockade is entirely driven by Israeli economic and agricultural interests, but there are some places where that does factor in, and other places where it's just very hard, I think, to see a rational security reason for certain aspects of the blockade. Other aspects of the blockade, I think, do have a stronger security rationale, but some simply don't. And in your three rationales, the other is Hamas. Uh, the other is Hamas. So the third would be that the election and takeover of Hamas in 2006-2007 left Israel with no choice but to pursue the policies that it's pursued since. And I think there was another alternative that would have been more effective for Israel and better for the Palestinian people. And if we're lying about these three things and to ourselves, uh, what is the truth? The truth is, 
I think that Israel has imposed a collective punishment on the people of Gaza, which has been devastating for them. The United Nations says that Gaza will be unlivable by 2020. It's virtually run out of water, very, very little electricity. In many places, children are going to school four hours a day. But this has not dislodged Hamas. Hamas is as firmly ensconced in control of Gaza as it was back in 2007 when it first took control there. And I think that it is not in Israel's long-term interest. If Israel wants to coexist with the people of Gaza and wants even the people of Gaza to accept Israel's right to exist as a Jewish state, creating a whole generation of young people in Gaza who are growing up in, with utter misery and despair is not only, I think, from a moral perspective, just despicable, but it's also, I think, ultimately breeding some of the very nightmares that Israel most fears. The protesters in Gaza want to come back. They want to return to Israel proper. They want to walk over the border and go back to their homes. How do you change that situation? Right. So I think it's important to start by understanding that 70% of the people in Gaza are refugees or the descendants of refugees. The population of Gaza basically tripled during Israel's War of Independence, what Palestinians call the Nakba. And there was a flood, especially of people from what's now southern Israel, cities that are now like Ashdod and Ashkelon, into Gaza. I support a two-state solution with an uh, answer to the refugee problem that would involve some return of refugees, but compensation and the resettling of many others in the West Bank and Gaza, which would be a Palestinian state. I am not of the view that Israel has the obligation to allow every single Palestinian who wants to return and their children and grandchildren to return. But I also think that it is really a mistake, and you find often this in American establishment Jewish discourse, to equate the Palestinian desire for return with genocide and to see it as per se anti-Semitic. We as Jews of all people, I believe, who for 2,000 years prayed for a return to the land of Israel, should be able to understand the human longing to return to places that Palestinians lived only 70 years ago. That doesn't mean that Israel has to give up all control over its immigration policy, but there is a different way, I think, of thinking and talking about this Palestinian yearning to return, which doesn't immediately equate it with the destruction of Israel and the wiping of Jews off the map, which I think is a common trope that you find in establishment American Jewish discourse. So that trope is the thing that is blocking any kind of movement. We have not had serious negotiations between Israel and the Palestinians in a while, but if you look at the most serious negotiations that were taking place, you look at the, the historical records we have of those, what you see is that there was a move towards a kind of ultimate final deal in which Palestinians would get a capital in the Palestinian neighborhoods of East Jerusalem and some control over the Temple Mount, which Palestinians call Haram al-Sharif, and in exchange, essentially, for giving up the complete right of return. And there's some reason to believe that like some negotiators, Israeli negotiators, have believed that both Arafat and Abbas 
were open to that kind of deal. I think one can imagine, again, within a framework of a number of issues, particularly on Jerusalem and on refugees, which have often been tied together, the way a deal might ultimately be crafted on that. But I also think it requires a different discourse. It's important for Israelis and also American Jews to begin talking about the Nakba, the Palestinians called the catastrophe of Israel's creation, to be teaching that and talking about that in Jewish institutions. It doesn't mean that we can't be proud of Israel's creation. We can't believe that it was a great thing for the Jewish people. But we should be able to be nuanced enough and empathetic enough to understand that something that was a blessing for the Jewish people created enormous, enormous pain and suffering for Palestinians. And it wasn't simply that Palestinians brought this all on themselves, although Palestinian leaders certainly made bad choices. It was also that sometimes in history, something that is a blessing for one group can be a disaster for another. I'm talking with Peter Beinert about his article, American Jews Have Abandoned Gaza and the Truth in the Forward. And one of the things you discuss is an alternative strategy built not on collective punishment, but on hope. How do you begin to build a strategy on hope? First of all, I think there are aspects of the blockade that you could lift right away. I understand why Israel has restrictions on certain dual-use items that Hamas could use to launch attacks on Israel. But if you look, for instance, at the limitations on Gazan exports, for instance, the fact that Israel allows farmers in Gaza to export eggplant and tomatoes, but not spinach and potatoes and beans. I don't see any security rationale for that whatsoever, nor do I think this is a good security argument for preventing students from Gaza from going to study in the West Bank, or the very severe restrictions on travel from people to Gaza, even in the case of wanting to go to weddings or funerals or to see a dying relative who lives in the West Bank or Israel proper. I, think those, I don't think those help Israeli security. I think they harm Israeli security. Secondly, I think it's very important to have democratic elections among Palestinians so Palestinians can elect a legitimate leadership. And I believe that means you have to allow Hamas to run in those elections. If Hamas attacks Israel, Israel has every right to defend itself. But I believe that if Israelis have the right to vote for parties like Naftali Bennett's party or indeed even Benjamin Netanyahu's Likud party that oppose the two-state solution, then Palestinians also have the right to vote for parties that oppose the two-state solution. I hope they don't. But it seems to me unfair to say that Israel can have a democratic process in which they can choose parties that are more or less hostile to the peace process, but Palestinians don't have that right. When you say that the Likud party rejects a two-state solution and Naftali Bennett rejects a two-state solution, what does that mean? Well, if you look at the party platform of Likud, when it has put out party platforms, it's explicitly said, we as the Likud party oppose ever giving up the West Bank, and we oppose the creation of a Palestinian state in the territories that Israel conquered in 1967. Now, and Naftali Bennett, whose party is to the right of Likud, has been very explicit about that. Now, Benjamin Netanyahu, despite his Likud's party's opposition to a Palestinian state, did say at the beginning of the Obama administration in 2009, under pressure from the United States, that he supported some kind of Palestinian state the borders of which he never defined. But subsequently, especially since about 2014, he's made a whole series of statements basically saying that Israel will never surrender military control of the West Bank. He's said that a number of times now. So I think it's pretty overwhelmingly clear. If you want to say that Hamas doesn't support the two-state solution, and I think there's good reason to believe they don't, there's also overwhelming evidence that Likud and indeed Benjamin Netanyahu don't support the two-state solution. If so many actors don't support a two-state solution, is that just kind of uh, off the boards these days? It doesn't seem like the 
president of the United States is really pursuing what would be recognized traditionally as a two-state solution with the Saudis and uh, the thing they're cooking up right now with uh, Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Uh, it doesn't look like what I think your version of a two-state solution would look like. No, that's true. Um, look, I think the two-state solution is, you know, was like the line about democracy. It's the worst solution, except for all the other solutions. Um, a a one-state solution, which is essentially what we have now, in which Israel in various forms controls the West Bank and Gaza, along with Israel proper, but in which basically half the people in that territory, the Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank, lack basic rights. That, I think, is an immoral and ultimately not a sustainable solution. If you hold people in what is essentially kind of under colonial control, which by which I mean they're subjects of a state but not citizens of a state, they can't become citizens of that state, it's a recipe for endless war. On the other hand, there are many Palestinians who've moved towards support for some kind of secular binational state. I think the problem with that is that nationalism is a very powerful force among both Palestinians and Israeli Jews, and I think it's a very strong desire for self-determination and statehood among both groups. And you see in the polls, that there is still, despite what I said about Likud and Hamas, support for a two-state solution, significant support among both Palestinians and Israeli Jews. And that's why I think, although the possibilities for a two-state solution have become harder in recent years, I still think it's the best of all the alternatives that are out there. If you were a Democratic candidate running in the upcoming elections, how do you address this? Uh, Democrats and Republicans, both super supportive of Israel, both in theory want to have a two-state solution. How do you nuance what's happening in Gaza with that? I think with Democratic politicians, there is a vast gap in my experience between what they're willing to say publicly and what they think or at least suspect privately. And oftentimes, I think they simply don't want to know because the more they knew, the more the cognitive dissonance between the reality and their own values and the political realities as they see them, the greater that cognitive dissonance would become. I think we are waiting for Democratic politicians, for some Democratic politicians to have the courage to say that Israel's policies in both the West Bank and Gaza are not just bad for Israel, but fundamentally immoral, and I think also bad for the United States. And Bernie Sanders has probably gone further than any other national politician on that front. When that happens, when Democratic politicians become more willing to say that more boldly, I think two very interesting things will happen. First of all, there will be a predictive and very hostile response from American Jewish establishment organizations. But I think there will be a great upsurge of support and enthusiasm from many in Democratic Party grassroots, including many younger American Jews. And I think it will show other Democratic politicians that actually the political risk of taking this kind of position, it may actually be worth it. Well, if politicians get up and say, well, what we think is going on is immoral, do they have to go to USA, to Israel and say, I don't support this kind of largesse towards something I think is immoral? They don't have to. It would be valuable for them just to say it in and of itself, because even that would be far beyond what most national Democrats are willing to say. In terms of what the policies you would need to implement to move the Israeli government, I do think that there are a number of different 
things one could do. I mean, on the West Bank, I think that one could simply say and enforce, which the U.S. government has not done, that United States money will not be used to promote the settlement enterprise. In theory, that's already the case, but in practice, it's not. For instance, the United States makes it actually quite easy to get tax-exempt deductions for donations to the settlement. So that would be one thing. But I would ultimately if it was required, be willing to go further. I support U.S. military aid to Israel, but I don't think that military aid has to be given with a blank check to Israel or to any other country. And I do think that the United States can use the leverage of its military aid to expect Israel to change policies that I think are devastating to the Palestinian people, bad for U.S. security, and I think ultimately also very bad for Israel's future. Uh, right now, the United States doesn't want to support Palestinian schools, doesn't want to support the UN UNRWA program that runs Palestinian schools in Gaza. It seems to be going the other direction. Yeah, you know, it's really hard to exaggerate how despicable that decision is. Um, it really almost takes my breath away. I mean, first of all, the idea, which has been promoted a long time on the Jewish right, is that somehow if you get rid of UNRWA, Palestinians won't think of themselves as refugees anymore, and therefore you will have dealt with the Palestinian refugee problem will disappear. That's just utter nonsense. This is the kind of thing that people can come up with who've never talked to a Palestinian. You have no understanding of Palestinian identity and the depth of that storyline and experience among Palestinians. Second of all, you're talking, especially in Gaza, but not only in Gaza, in other Palestinian areas, about deeply, deeply vulnerable populations who were relying on UNRWA for some of the basics of life. Again, UNRWA runs a lot of the schools in the Gaza Strip. You know, children in Gaza, if you're a 10-year-old in Gaza, you've been bombed by Israel three times. Virtually every child in that territory who has suffering some form of post-traumatic stress disorder. The schools are already so overcrowded that they're running double or triple shifts, and kids are sometimes going to school in the dark without electricity, without sufficient water, sometimes for four hours a day. And the United States' response to that is to cut aid to UNRWA so that those schools will be less able to function, so those kids will be less able to go to school, so that they will be less able to get food aid. I mean, putting aside the fact that it's just deeply, deeply immoral. But, you know, what do we think is going to happen to those kids? What is the political outlook going to be for those kids? What are those kids going to think about the United States? How much more prone to the ideologies of ISIS are those kids going to be when they grow up without education and in utter despair and misery without hope? It's blind and it's stupid and it's just, I think, repulsive. And it hasn't gotten as much attention as it should have. Right now, we're going to see these protests again tomorrow, and odds are that the collective punishment route is the route that the leadership in Israel and uh, the United States endorses for Gaza, and that's going to be what people get. Yes, and I think Benjamin Netanyahu feels quite empowered because the blame doesn't only fall on Israel and the United States. It's not just that the United States has said to Israel, basically, you can do whatever you want to these people. Um, the Saudis have essentially said that. The Arab governments have really largely turned their back on the Palestinian people, even though the Arab populations care about them. And we also see that the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas himself, has taken steps that really harm the people of Gaza. So I think... What's so poignant and heartbreaking about this moment is that the people of Gaza have been abandoned by so many powerful actors in the world. And I think it's quite likely that Israel's response will be very, very harsh, because I think the Israeli government feels that it can get away with it. 
Peter Beinert is a writer. We've been talking about his article on the foreword, American Jews Have Abandoned Gaza and the Truth. He also teaches journalism and political science at City University of New York. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thanks for having me. Coming up after the break, we'll hear about the situation facing Syrian refugees. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. For several years, Syrian refugees have come to Chicago. The Syrian Community Network was founded to help them start their new lives. The Syrian Community Network is hosting a reading of the play Lost and Guided. It's a play that tells the story of four Syrian refugees, and it's Monday night at the Goodman Theater. Suzanne Akra-Salul is here. She is the founder and executive director of the Syrian Community Network. Good to see you. Good to see you again. Um, first of all, I wanted to ask about what was going on with Syrian refugees in the United States because um, the numbers don't look good. It's uh, the last six months, uh, 44 Syrian refugees have come to the U.S. Yes, it's very unfortunate that uh, we're facing the worst humanitarian crisis, uh, refugee crisis in our lifetime, and that we've only uh, allowed in 44 uh, Syrian refugees to the U.S. And uh, this year, in 2018, we've only allowed in uh, 11 uh, Syrian refugee families. And this is out of uh, 6 million registered uh, Syrian refugees with the UNHCR. Uh, so this number is really uh, very sad and very low, and, uh, and I would urge everyone to call our uh, lawmakers and ask them to increase the numbers. This is uh, very unfortunate. The Trump administration, of course, said they were going to reduce the ceiling for the number of refugees who come into the country, and it's um, 45,000 total. Mm -hmm. And they're they're still on track to not even get half that in this year. Yeah. So uh, traditionally, we we usually resettle uh, 70,000 refugees from all over the world um, to the U.S. Uh, So since the Trump administration made the announcement uh, this uh, past year, we will only resettle 45,000, which is the lowest it's been in 50 years. Uh, but so far, we've only resettled about 8,600 know, refugees uh, from every conflict uh, across the U.S., which is not even half uh, of, of the number that was promised. How many Syrian refugees here are in Chicago and the Syrian Community Network is working with? How many of them? So we are currently working with 180 Syrian refugee families, and we serve from Evanston to Hyde Park and from Chicago to Aurora um, and all of the suburbs that are in between. Um, Many of the families are here, are women and children. Uh, At our center, we're offering ESL classes. We're offering after-school classes. We have case management, mentorship program. Um, Our families who have been here for three years are working, have steady work and, and steady income that's coming in. Uh, the newer families, we're still working with them to get them off on their feet. Uh, and I'd like to give uh, my staff all a big shout out because they do the day in and day out work uh, with the Syrian refugee families. Uh, and we're really uh, proud of the families and how much they've come along. Uh, some of these families are now, um, again, holding down steady jobs and their children are doing very well at school. 
Can you give us an idea of a typical family? Uh, so uh, one family that I, I always like to boast about is Ahmad Al-Atrash. And um, whenever I'm having a bad day, I think of Ahmad. So Ahmad uh, uh, is someone who came in um, in August of 2016. He came through Refugee One and he resettled in, in Skokie. And um, Ahmad has childhood polio and he's been in a wheelchair his whole life. Um, um, through our mentorship program, we were able to uh, secure um, uh, a job for him uh, at, at a denim factory. He worked as a tailor in Syria and uh, at this denim, he works full time at the denim factory and it takes him an hour to get to work and an hour to go home in a wheelchair. He takes the yellow line every day uh, until he gets to work. And so the days I'm having really dif- so, you know, such difficulties and I think of Ahmed and if he can do it, I think I can and all of us can. Now, tell us a little about the play Lost and Guided. It's a project you kind of, stu- uh, I guess, kind of fell into. You went and saw the play in New York. Yeah, so um, so in 2016, Irene, uh, who's the founder of the Angel Project, and she's on, uh, she, we'll hear from Irene. Uh, so she reached out to me, and, and we had a conversation, and somehow I just really connected with Irene, and I, I knew I wanted to help her. Uh, but I didn't know how to help her. And, and a friend of mine um, from New York uh, also reached out to me and asked me, what can I do for you? I want to help you. And so I put Irene and Dr. Conrad Fisher in contact, and they both lived in New York. And then uh, Dr. Conrad uh, helped fund uh, um, this play uh, for uh, Irene uh, the, uh, called Lost and Guided. And, um, and it played last year, uh, last August in, in New York, the whole month of August, and it received rave reviews. And I had the honor of, of going to view the, uh, the play um, at the end of August, and I just really fell in love with it. And it was just so, such an amazing and moving story. It really touched my heart. It, it resonated with uh, the story of many Syrians who um, uh, are dealing with uh, family members dispersed all over the world, people um, either uh, have gone, you know, refugees have gone to Zatari or to Europe or come to the United States. And this story that Irene uh, wrote uh, and developed is just tells that story of every Syrian family that, you know, is dealing with um, having family members dispersed or killed or jailed or tortured um, since the start of, of 2011. And it's a really beautiful story. And I encourage everybody to come out on this Monday uh, at the Goodman Theater. And Irene Capustina is co-founder, artistic, and executive director at the Angel Project in, based in New York. Thanks for joining us, Irene. Thank you, Jerome. Um, good to be here. Hi, Suzanne. Hi. <laughs> um, you tell us a little bit about how you developed this uh, play, because it sounds interesting. You really based it off of the experience of actual Syrian refugees. That's right. So the the original project started, I wanted originally to be a community project where I would um, work directly with um, refugees and we would use performance art to build some sort of social skills. But then um, as I started to get to know more about the situation and the need for the storytelling and knowing how powerful storytelling is, um, I decided under the umbrella of the organization, the Engel Project here in New York, to uh, create a play. And um, well, the the process was um, I went to diff- four different states. It was uh, Tennessee, Maine, Michigan, and New York. And I connected to grassroots um, refugee organizations um, who introduced me to families of refugees that are not only Syrians. They were from uh, Myanmar, from Iraq, from um, Somalia, Sudan, Syria, and um, I got to meet the people and I talked to them. It was um, very long conversations, um, hours of transcribing, 
And um, after a while, I realized that um, many stories, um, despite the fact that they were coming from different directions, from different uh, experiences, from different countries, had similarities in them. You know, every story, every every person's story is in itself a. Um, it could be, you could write a book about it, but also in the dis- displacement process itself, uh, there are so many common threads, and so. You know, granted the political situation and the, uh, all the events that were unfolding in Syria at that time, I thought that, you know, I'm going to use this very powerful tool, the storytelling, and base the stories in Syria. And yes, um, 90% of the words are coming directly from um, interview transcripts, um, and but the um, characters and some of the life episodes are inspired by experiences of other people from other from other countries, and I was able to kind of weave all of them together to reflect the different types of experiences that a displacement process is, and specifically it, now it is uh, specific to the Syrian experience, but I think it speaks much more to the whole displacement process, and for me. Um, you know, I originally started as a director directing straight theater, but I always felt that given the current situation we're under and all of the things that are happening in the world and asking myself a question, what is my civic responsibility as an artist, knowing the um, the kind of the power of storytelling, what can I do? And I've always kind of dreamed to take uh, to take my work out of the pure entertainment um, context and kind of give it more weight. Um, and, you know, that that is kind of the inspiration behind the creating this particular play because we're not using it only to kind of entertain people or tell a story, but we're asking questions where along with the play, for example, in New York, we're doing public forums where we would invite uh, politicians, um, uh, people who would deal with um, refugee resettlement and talk to our audiences, ask them questions, offer them opportunities to think about how, what is my responsibility, what is my global responsibility within the crisis. And uh, I think last, sorry, yeah, mm-hmm, go ahead. I want to reintroduce you. You're Irene Capostina, and you're with the Angle Project, and the play that you're doing here with the Goodman Theater on Monday night is Lost and Guided, and it tells the story of four Syrian refugees um, Monday night at the Goodman Theater. So you're um, you yourself. You're from uh, Belarus, and, and not that long ago. Mm-hmm. How do, do you mm-hmm. kind of relate to this as as, an, as someone who just came to this country? Um, I came uh, quite a while ago. I came in 2003, and um, um, it has that been seems a recently. Long it seems like a life, lifetime to me. Um, it's been a long and tortuous journey. I lived in Chicago. I went to Loyola to finish my education, and I went to grad school here in New York. But as an immigrant, I've always identified with with these experiences. You know, especially if you don't come, if you come with nothing, as a typical, you know, living the typical American dream, which is basically working a lot of hours and doing everything you can to to fulfill your your ability as a human being your human potential and just seeing that um that the importance of of telling and explaining to people that human potential is huge and deep within any individual and um so, you know, the Angle Project doesn't work specifically with only Syrian refugees. We work with a lot of immigrants of different types um, of backgrounds. And uh, Syrian crisis specifically hit a very deep note with me because I just, um, it just wouldn't, uh, 
just leave the news. And for, for me, I just couldn't understand why we just keep watching it. I mean, sharing on Facebook, um, creating awareness is one thing, but we need to do something really tangible for these people where you, we would make a difference in their lives. And um, that was that was really strange to me that we would just watch it unfold and get worse and worse day by day. And you know, as as a person, even me, you become numb to these to these huge, enormously violent images that we are bombarded with every day. And so I decided to use whatever I could and whatever skills I had and contribute to to, to mending the the issue. You know. Lost and Guided is at the Goodman Theater on Monday night. I'm talking with Irene Capistina, the creator of Lost and Guided, about four Syrian refugees. And with us is Henry Wishcamper. He's a producer at the Goodman Theater. Nice to meet you, Henry. Nice to meet you, too. Uh, why does the Goodman do these kind of things where you host an, uh, host an event with the Syrian Community Network? Uh, well, Suzanne uh, participated in the first event we did of a new program we ha- have called Arts in Action, uh, which is designed to introduce Goodman audiences to concrete actions that they can take to affect change on some of the issues that we present on our stage and to introduce them to organizations in the community that are working on those issues in the Chicagoland area. And so Suzanne came to us with this play, which is a beautiful play. It hadn't been seen in Chicago. Um, and uh, we're really thrilled to be able to present it or to host it and to uh, provide the Syrian Community Network with an opportunity to raise some money. And the um, event will have a talkback section, section afterwards. I'm going to host the talkback. Yes. Yeah, so we'll, after the show, um, uh, for those of uh, the, those uh, people who have the extra tickets, we'll be able to come in and attend, uh, have a small dinner, and then attend the Q&A with Irene. With, and we have a Syrian refugee. Her name is Rihab Al-Qadi. She will be there. And she, uh, Rihab, um, lived in Ghouta and uh, resettled in Chicago in 2015. And then Maya Tassi, our de- deputy director, will also be on the on the panel, uh, but the Rehab story uh, will really resonate with a lot of people, and especially a lot of women, because she's someone who um, uh, came here, has been studying English, has worked hard, and now she's just recertified as an engineer uh, because she worked. She used to be an engineer in Syria, and so she's through her hard work, um, she's uh, overcome leaps and bounds, and um, and we're so proud of her, and we want people to come and hear her story, and so that they can, as a woman, uh, a refugee woman who came here, uh, lost everything and has has been rebuilding her life, and everyone should come and encourage that. Now, um, the event is taking place Monday night at the Goodman Theater, and people can go to where to yes, get Yes, uh, to go to syriancommunitynetwork.org, and you'll find the uh, the flyer and the information uh, right on our homepage. Uh, click on the link, and um, if you purchase the VIP ticket, you will be able to come out to the uh, Q&A session um, and, uh, and, and ask questions all you want, and um, we hope to see you all there. And, uh, and thank you to the Goodman for hosting us, and thank you, Jerome, for listening. Uh, leading our Q&A session and Not having us on the radio. Suzanne Akras-Salul is founder and executive director of the Syrian Community Network. Irene Capistina is a uh, artistic director and executive director of the Angle Theater Project. And Henry Wishcamper is with the Goodman. Thanks a lot for joining us all and talking about the situation facing Syrian refugees and the play Lost and Guided. Thank you. Thank you.
Coming up after the break, we'll talk about maternal mortality in India. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for our global activism segment where we feature people who make the world a better place. The Save a Mother organization has made some terrific progress in its 10 years. It's worked on maternal and infant mortality in Uttar Pradesh, India. Here is the founder, Shaban Ganju, in 2016. To give an idea, we were able to decrease maternal mortality by more than 90% in about three years' time, at a cost of 25 cents per capita per year. We spend about $100 to $150 per village per year. It's almost difficult to find in a village a person who hasn't been affected by this. When I go to a village now, as opposed to eight or nine years ago, uh, you ask them, any maternal deaths here, and they look around and say, no, in the last one year, we don't know of any. Then now with me is Maruvanti uh, Ghosh. She has recently visited seven villages in India, helped by Save a Mother. Her day job is as associate curator of Indian, Southeast Asian, Himalayan, and Islamic art at the Art Institute. Great to have you with me, Maru. Thank you. Tell us how you got involved with Save a Mother and how you ended up visiting villages. Well, um, I'd heard a lot about Save a Mother in the community. Um, One hears about a lot of charitable causes in the community. Um, But there was something about this, particularly the maternal and infant mortality um, issues that made me more curious. And um, I you know, like chased Shiban down and sat him down and said, you know, tell me more about this. And uh, um, and uh, I think he thought that, you know, I was just asking a casual question. But uh, when I'm kind of doing, doing homework on projects, I really like to do my homework. And um, I think he was surprised when I suddenly said, you know, I'm going to be in Uttar Pradesh. You know, can I come and see some of your villages? And... Um, and I followed up and I went and it was really quite a remarkable experience. I'm so glad that I, you know, pushed and <laughs> forced him to let me go and see some of the projects. Now, remarkably, it's the Save a Mother organization is in a thousand villages and you went to seven. Uh, what's it like when you get there? Well, uh, they're pretty remote. Um, the kind of the good road stops at a certain point and uh, then you kind of go from village to village and they're pretty spread out sometimes. Um, But as soon as you meet the women and particularly uh, the people that we train, the Arogya Sakhis, the health activists, um, then you forget about where you are because, you know, it's just woman to woman. You're just kind of hearing their stories. Uh, you're hearing about their work and what they're doing. And it's so moving and um, it's so powerful that you forget about the fact that, you know, these are districts and villages with very, very poor connectivity to the rest of the country. 
How does the Save a Mother project work? You mentioned that there's a person in, in the village who is kind of the connecting point. Um, how does that go? Yes. So what we do is we train people in those local villages. Uh, so we, you know, pick up health activists from these villages and we work with them. And in many cases, our health activists also work with the government health activists in those villages because, you know, on paper, the you know there's everything the the setup is there what we do is we go in our health activists really kind of because they are from there they work with the local uh, village women um, and ensure that there is follow-up. Uh, so whether it's with maternal health, they will look after the whole period of uh, one's pregnancy, ensure that they get treatment and they go for checkups, um, you know, sanitation. They look at the the process of childbirth, ensure that they get the help that uh, the help that they need. So as Shivan keeps saying, you know, it's not rocket science, but it's that follow up, that fact that this is somebody local that they can trust from somebody that they know. Um, and also sometimes the the government activists in those the the health practitioners in those villages, um, they perhaps sometimes don't have the same degree of um, relationship with many of the women, um, the same kind of bond. And so it's more about how they interact through uh, their communication, in fact, um, and the fact that they're trusted um, has created this bond. Uh, and the women themselves, our activists, are just such empowered women. Um, they are so active in the way that they communicate that I feel that I think that's what makes this so successful at the grassroots level. Now, is there an, um, an educational component to this? Yes. Uh, the, um, I, we pulled a clip of singing at, the, at one of the villages, and it's all the women in the village, and they're all singing. And this is, you tell me this is actually a part of the educational component. It is. Um, it's through these songs that are composed by the the health activists themselves, the sakis themselves, um, and um, you know some of the sakis are really into these um, into these compositions, which they compose themselves. That they actually impart education about cleanliness, health, what to do, you know, when you have a newborn, all of these um, things that otherwise you know would be in some kind of pamphlet or some kind of leaflet. Um, they are are making it part of women's everyday lives. And so they all do a little sing-along and they couldn't wait to do one of those for me. Here's uh, the clip of the music and the people singing along in a, in a village, women. <laughs> I'm talking with Madhu Ghosh about Save a Mother. What are they saying there, Madhu? So um, they're singing about the fact that, uh, first of all, don't uh, differentiate between a girl and a boy. 
you know, except the child, um, whoever, you know, whatever the gender. And then they're talking about how, come along, let's go to the health center. <laughs> so very basic things, but it's this collective... Um, it sounds like there's a lot of women involved doing yes, this. Yes, yes. I mean, practically all the women of all ages uh, come together and they do these sing-alongs. I mean, I experienced um, seeing women of all ages, you know, from... Um, kind of teenagers to really elderly women. And in fact, amongst the health activists, we train women of many different age groups. So not, I mean, uh, many of them are uh, senior ladies. And I think that also brings a certain degree of gravity to um, the message that, um, you know, your mother-in-law could be involved, your sister-in-law could be involved in the, you know, young uh, girl growing up in the family could be involved as well. So they really uh, help people, uh, help girls from um, as they're entering puberty, uh, because uh, some of the focus is also on, you know, uh, issues around uh, sanitation and uh, menstruation, um, menstrual health. And then, of course, uh, when they're marriageable, to encourage them to get married later. That's a big part of it. And then to uh, control the number of children that they have. So it, uh, what might seem very basic uh, to our audiences here, but in fact, that's what's making the difference in a place like rural UP. So uh, these women are this. Uh, some of them are attending university. Young women, they, you know, they go to universities. It's it's a place where they can uh, change their lives. True, um, I've met a lot of the health activists who are young. Uh, they are married. They are maintaining their families, and they're going to local colleges and universities locally, which sometimes in involves kind of great distances from where they actually live. And then they're doing this. Um, so it, I was really um, impressed by how, um, uh, you know, how powerful the message was when it comes from your peer. Um, and uh, these are great role models, our activists. Um, I, I just kept feeling that all we have to do is be in the background and empower them and they'll do the rest of the work. You know, when we are talking about that last mile of connectivity between uh, what the state governments give uh, for healthcare in these districts and villages and why there is this kind of disparity between the grassroots and uh, on paper, it's this empowerment of the local women, I think, that is the key. And that's what's taken a place with extremely high maternal mortality rates Correct. and just drops, drops them to nothing. Yes. I mean, that's what's so shocking. I used to um, chase Shivan and say, but how can that be possible? And he'd say, it's not rocket science. And it really took me going there to really understand it wasn't rocket science. Everything is quite simple and straightforward, but yet... Um, that intervention is required to make a drop in that way. Save a Mother is celebrating 10 years, and there's a gala going on at the Chicago Marriott uh, on the 5th. Yes, on Saturday. And what's going to happen there? Well, we uh, hope to hear about our uh, 
what we've done in the last 10 years. But at the same time, we have Shabana Azmi, the famous um, actor, activist coming. She's been a, we call her our first volunteer. The whole thing is run by volunteers, essentially. Um, and so Shabana, I hope, will play her role in making people open their checkbooks. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the idea that it's all run by volunteers, like there's no staff whatsoever. There's uh, just these local people who get stipends in India, but everything that all of us do is completely voluntary. And there's a hub in Chicago and a hub in uh, Houston? Yes. Um, Chicago actually was, you know, uh, where it all started. Um, Ten years ago, uh, we had seed money from the India Development Service, the IDS, uh, an over 40-year-old organization in Chicagoland, um, to actually start with one village. And uh, now we are spread across not just parts of Uttar Pradesh, but we've expanded to Karnataka. And, um, you know, so we are increasing our activity. We would like to expand to other districts as well with very poor numbers in um, uh, maternal and infant mortality. And what we found is when we do this, when we create these local networks, we can add many other things to the work that we do. You know, so we are adding sanitation. We're adding tuberculosis um, related. You know, uh, we're really picking up. Uh, on TB, uh, trying to intervene before uh, people uh, get too far along. So we're really able to um, uh, use the network for many other purposes uh, to provide healthcare at the grassroots. Well, I hope a lot of people will get involved with Save a Mother. The, the website's saveamother.org. Org. Yes. And the 10th anniversary gala is May 5th at the Chicago Marriott on Michigan Avenue. And Maru Ghosh is recently visited seven villages in India, helped by Save a Mother, and she works with the Art Institute on a normal job. And it's been uh, great talking with you about this project. It's very inspiring and good to hear that maternal mortality rates uh, can drop like a rock if you just put your mind to it. Thank you. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll talk with Milo Stalik. He'll interview Sebastian Lilo. He just won this year's Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film, A Fantastic Woman. And he's got a slew of films coming out uh, that are forthcoming. And you can hear him tomorrow on Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Anna Waters and Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.